This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 28, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The traditions within Islam that celebrated liberty have in many ways been lost, and for outsiders looking in, Islam appears to be as authoritarian as religion can be. Mustafa Akiol, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, is author of the new book for libertarianism.org, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty. It's available now. This is not your first book exploring themes like this, uh, and we've talked about him on the Cato Daily Podcast on a number of occasions uh, and other other places as well. So what what is the case that you're making here? Thank you, Caleb. Uh, my newest book, which just came out this week, Why as a Muslim I Defend Liberty, is a book, it's, it's a short little book, which summarizes all my basic arguments about the intersection of Islam and liberty in a nutshell. And and with new ideas, with new arguments, with new stories, with new thought experiments that I have not written before. So if uh, I want to give somebody an introduction to what I think on this big issue, just gigantic issue of whether the Islamic civilization can accept liberty in the classical liberal sense, uh, th- this book is is at least a beginning to to that conversation. Uh, and I have chapters about religious freedom or freedom of speech. I have chapters about the market economy, like free markets and Islam. And also I address a few things, like, for example, there's a chapter saying, is liberty a Western conspiracy? Because uh, for a lot of Muslims uh, in the modern world, liberty, freedom, these are concepts they've been hearing from Western powers, European powers or the United States, and and they and these powers have a colonial history. I mean, France occupied Algeria, uh, bring, uh, claiming to bring freedom to Algerian women, but it was a colonial power that occupied the country, it brutalized the country. So I want to disentangle all these concepts and saying that, you know, Western colonialism, imperialism is something else. We should criticize it. We have the right to criticize it. Actually, liberty is the principle that we can use to criticize it, to say we oppose it. And I show actually how the first Muslim liberals, self-defined people who, uh, it was called Ahrar, which means people who support Hurriya, which is the Islamic term for freedom or the Arabic term for freedom. I show how Islamic liberals in the late Ottoman Empire and the Arab world defended freedom for their societies at the same time they opposed Western colonial interventions. So the book, puts the argument and also uh, clears the ground uh, and and uh, tries to uh, get over with some of the confusions about the notion of liberty in Muslim uh, culture today. So early on, you quote the Quran and uh, you quote verse 256 of the second chapter of the Quran and the line is, there is no compulsion in religion. Uh, unpack that. Sure. I mean, that is probably the, probably the beginning of any discussion on Islam and freedom. That's a verse that what I would call the liberal-minded Muslims love and quote and re-quote all the time. You know, it's right there in the Quran. There is no compulsion in religion. But if you look at some conservative uh, interpreters, uh, which I quote in this book, they actually take a much more <laughs> reserved uh, take on that verse. Actually, after I quote, I quote that verse, which, which by the way, came to Prophet Muhammad in Medina 
to rule out forced conversions to Islam. There were there were families in Medina. This was during the time of Prophet Muhammad, and they had children who had become Jewish. And ha- were they supposed to force them uh, convert to Islam uh, back? Uh, and the worst ruled out against that. So that's very interesting. Uh, so it was a worst really that upheld religious freedom. Uh, however, I also quote a Turkish imam uh, who gave a passionate sermon a few years ago, and he says there is compulsion in Islam. He says there is only no compulsion to Islam. Like if you're not a Muslim, you will not be forced to become a Muslim. So we can allow people to remain Jewish or Christian, which was the case in throughout Islamic history, uh, although they were not treated equally. So that's another problem. Uh, but he says once you're Muslim. You have to. You are subject to the laws of Islam, quote unquote, which means you cannot be an apostate. You can't leave the religion. That 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 is a, a crime punishable by death. Plus, you are under the authority of the religion police, so you can be disciplined to wear your headscarf if you're a woman or your face veil. Uh, you, you are you can be forced to do your prayers, which is exactly these days what Taliban is <laughs> exactly bringing back to Afghanistan. I mean, groups like the Taliban are acting on some of the interpretations uh, of Islam that are out there. So we cannot deny those things. One thing I emphasize, though, is that Christianity had similar interpretations. If you look at the history of Christianity, there was a time that from just one wor- verse in the Gospel of Luke which says, compel people to enter to my church. A doctrine of compella intrare was created by Christians, which was the basis for forced conversions, torturing people for their own good, supposedly by the Inquisition. And, and But Christianity outgrew that phase. So in the book, I go back and forth often between these reinterpretations in Christianity. I discuss a lot of Locke, John Locke, and his ideas on freedom in, in the Christian tradition, how that resonates with some of the steps that we need to take in Islam today. And Islamic reformists and moderns are indeed arguing for. So you are quick to sort of separate out what uh, Sharia is, what it should not be, and what it should be. So what is Sharia, first of all, and then break that up? Well, for our listeners, the easiest way to explain the Sharia may be to compare it to another legal tradition in another religious tradition, and that is the Halakha of Judaism. Islam, just like Judaism, is a, to some extent, legalistic religion in the sense that you believe in God, that's good, and what do you do with that belief? Well, you obey God's law, which means you don't eat pork, right? You have the Sabbath. I mean, that's for Jews in Islam. We don't have the Sabbath, but like there is cir- there is circumcision of male boys, ma- male children, right? So these kind of practices, dietary laws, dress codes, Islam is very much similar to that. And in that sense, if it means your personal religious practices and, and a communal way of life as well, there's nothing wrong with that. That Just like the way Orthodox Jews are living according to the Halakha in New York, and it's their choice, and everybody respect that, and that's not a problem. That's, that's, a, that's an expression of religious freedom. But in an Islam, the Sharia also has a very long and unbroken relationship with state power. So medieval jurists said, okay, this is what God tells us. This is how women should be dressed. 
okay, so we should tell them and it's their choice. They didn't think like that. They said, we should tell them and make sure that they do that. Otherwise, we beat them up. So that is that coercive interpretation. And my argument is that that really doesn't come from the Quran. I mean, the, the core of Islam. It's just medieval scholars. And, and in medieval society, that was how society was structured. And we should give up that idea. On the other hand, uh, I know the Sharia is a toxic term in the West and people are always afraid of it. But I'm also highlighting in this book that there was something also very precious about the Sharia in, in classical Islam. Uh, so there, you will see a chapter titled, What We Should Revive from the Sharia, which I believe will surprise some people. And there I uh, highlight one aspect of the Sharia. Since Sharia was a God-given law, uh, its brutal interpretations are a problem. But it also had the idea that it is a God-given law that is about everybody, that is beyond political rulers. It is even about the rulers. So you have episodes in Islamic history where the sultans, the rulers, were called upon to obey the sharia and not confiscate people's property, for example. We have cases of, uh, for example, I, I begin with the story of the Ottoman sultan uh, called by uh, the Sheikh al-Islam, that was the top jurist of his time, to a court because the Ottoman sultan persecuted a Greek architect that was working for him. And the Greek architect went to the court and said, the sultan has violated my rights. And the court called the sultan. So uh, if we look into the spirit of it, the idea that there is a God-given law about the rulers, that's a precious uh, I think understanding in 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 western history the equivalent to that was the idea of natural law like there are natural laws that are beyond the rulers god-given rights inalienable rights of human beings that are above the governments so i think if we muslims in the modern world re-understand sharia not as brutal punishments not anything that's oppressive women or society but as a piety as a code of piety voluntarily practiced and also on the political sphere as a set of rights and ideas, values that are about political authority, I think that's the right way to go. Uh, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but when the founders of the United States were crafting these documents uh, that ultimately became uh, the documents that are <laughs> supposed to be standing law in the United States, uh, when they imagined religious freedom, when they considered the outside edge of what religious freedom should cover, there's some evidence that they were thinking about Islam. And, and so I suppose, do you know what they were considering when they were considering Islam as the something that ought to be protected by religious liberty? I mean, I uh, surely you and probably other colleagues at Cato know about that much better than me. But I myself have looked into that, and I've realized that the founding fathers of the United States actually referred to Islam in the context of religious freedom. Actually, I have a quote from Thomas Jefferson in this book, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, on page 21. Thomas Jefferson said, there should be religious freedom for the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mahometan, the Hindu, the infidel of every denomination. Well, the Mahometan is not a very accurate term. We don't call ourselves Mahometans, but Muslims. But I mean, it was an ancient but term. Followers for of Muslims. Muhammad. 
Yeah, the followers, the followers of Muhammad. He was trying to say that, and I think it didn't mean anything negative there. And the the infidel again is is a subjective term there. But what Thomas Jefferson was saying in this very interesting quote is that the United States should be a country for people of every faith and infidels. I mean, that is atheists and people who don't even believe, and Hindus and Muslims and so on and so forth. And that really what happened. I mean, uh, people. Now, uh, these days, I, I'm in the U.S. in the past few year, uh, years, and I see people criticizing a lot of issues in the United States about race, and I understand those problems. But from a religious freedom perspective, the United States is really admirable in, in, in many senses of the world. I mean, it's a country where people can practice their religion piously, and including Muslims. Uh, actually, I said recently on Twitter that there is one country in the world that Muslims of all sects from Sunnis and Shiites and Salafis and Ahmadis live freely and together fully worship their religion without any problem, and that's the United States. It's the most diverse uh, country for Muslims. And the fact that it's a secular country with a great emphasis on freedom is, I think, an important model. And we see that right out there in the ideas of the founding fathers. So what does Muslim liberalism look like today? Well, Muslim liberalism or Islamic liberalism, as I would call it, began in the 19th century when, uh, and I have a chapter on that in this book, uh, Ottoman intellectuals like Namak Kemal uh, and Arab Arab ones like Muhammad Abduh looked into European societies at the time. They admired many things. They admired constitutional governments, separation of powers or freedom of speech. And they realize that Muslim societies are lacking these institutions or values to a great extent. But they said, actually, these are compatible with the core of our religion. So they went, they began to look at Islamic scripture or the life of Prophet Muhammad from a new perspective. And it began there and it has made some progress. That's why today you have constitutional governments in many parts of the Muslim world. That is why you have some democracies, not very perfect ones, not very liberal ones, but still you have elections in uh, elected governments from Pakistan to Turkey. Uh, again, I mean, those countries have big problems with freedom of speech, for example. But you have free societies, by and large free societies like uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is uh, majority, majority Muslim, or Indonesia. Uh, so there, there has been some progress on the Islamic liberalism front, but there's also a reaction to it. Uh, there came a more strident reaction. And the groups you see, the groups you hear on the news, the concerning ones, like groups like Taliban, represent that reaction, right? I mean, the Taliban overthrew an Afghan government, which also calls itself Islamic, but which was a republic and which was, of course, relatively speaking, much more liberal. So this battle is going on, and and in this book I show that this battle is similar to the battle within Christianity. That's why I often go back and forth between the ideas of John Locke. This is John Locke was criticizing. He was saying that if you impose religion through state power, you will not make people religious but hypocrites. And I say, this is exactly what's happening today in our part of the world, and I make that argument. Or John Locke was saying, well, there is no need for a Christian state because the actually Bible doesn't speak of a Christian state. We can make the same argument, you know, based on the Quran. I think Christianity outgrew its oppressive, long history with liberalism, and that liberalism was a religious liberalism to a great extent. 
It came as a reinterpretation of Christianity. There was an anti-clerical aspect to it too in France, but I'm more interested in the transformation within liberal thinking. I show that the Catholic Church, I mean, until the actually 20th century, wasn't very comfortable with the idea of religious freedom or freedom of speech, but the Catholic Church took a big step forward in the 60s. Uh, and, and in Islam, we are at that moment. And the very reason that we have very troubling interpretations of Islam, violent, oppressive, now in Afghanistan, is, is the crisis which I hope can push us forward. Because let's not forget that, you know, John Locke came in Christianity only after terrible wars, wars of religion and, and persecution. Mustafa Akiol is author of Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, available now from libertarianism.org. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 